Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It's suddenly like if you were able to read a language, like one day you woke up and you're able to read a language you never thought you could, and you can understand this story that nobody has ever told you. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. For a few years, I've been intrigued by agave spirits, and in particular, mezcal. The flavor profiles, methods of production, and history of these beverages are fascinating and delicious. In the interest of promoting curiosity and the turtle goal of this podcast, I wanted to give space to this unique world of beverages that have an intriguing sense of place. Joining me in this endeavor are Lou Bank and Shava Periban, Executive Director and Project Manager, respectively, of Sacred, a 501c3 not-for-profit that helps improve lives in rural Mexican communities where heritage agave spirits are made. They are also co-hosts of Agave Road Trip podcast. Lou and Chava provide context by offering insight into the agricultural, political, social, and economic histories of Mezcal. We also touch on the work that Sacred does in improving lives in rural Oaxacan communities by supporting agricultural and water security initiatives. You can read more about Sacred's work in the links in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Lou Bank, Chava Periban, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks hey for there. having us. Thanks a lot. Uh, I don't know if you know what you're subscribing yourself into, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you're going to be, you're going to regret this, but uh, we're really happy to be here. I'm excited as well. You know, for listeners, I said it in the intro, but Lou and Chava, in addition to the sacred project, they also host a podcast called Agave Road Trip. And we're in for a flavor of that today. So I'm, I'm excited <laughs> as well as a listener. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was able to tamp down a little bit of my, my bad attitude. I'll, I'll call it when we were uh, working with wine enthusiasts, because I didn't want to scare those people off, but these are mainly beer drinkers that listen to you. Heavy hops, Lou. They're not only beer drinkers. <laughs> I think it's just people that are nerds that love music and love Bev and that hopefully have a sense of humor. The ones that I know that listen do so. <laughs> okay, I'm taking my tamp down shirt off. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We haven't talked about mezcal, tequila, or agave spirits on the show. It's something that is important to me as I find a lot of interesting sorts of crossovers in different types of beverages. So I wanted to bring Lou and Chava on to not just talk about sacred, but to give us like a little bit of background as a setup for our discussion about sacred. So I'm going to sort of throw out a couple of questions here and we can sort of walk through a little bit of background on mezcal and, and tequila. So we're talking about agave spirits and agave drinks, agave alcoholic beverages in the sort of time before Spaniards as a beginning point. And we can sort of talk about the evolution of the use of agave and all that. But let's begin just sort of basics. What did agave alcoholic drinks look like before the arrival of the Spaniards? So if, if creamy. Well, wait, wait, wait. But White even and before, Lou, 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 and I know, I know you're going to hate me a little bit for going this back. Never, but I never, hey, hey, Hate me a little bit. But uh, I think that something that pe most people don't quite understand about agave is that its true significance 
to, to the cultures of, of the American continent, it started as food. So imagine agaves. A lot of them, they grow up in extremely desertic areas, places where you cannot, you know, cultivate fruits or vegetables, not even have animals to eat. So a lot of the, of the communities that live in this context, they were like, okay, there are these fleshy, wonderful, crazy looking plants. And somehow they realized that if they cook them, they were sweet, they were delicious, and they were nutritious. What happened if they didn't cook them? Uh, they will die from explosive diarrhea. Uh, explosive so diarrhea. <laughs> Loose flavor well, you know, character. But the, yeah, but here's the thing, Chava. Like the, the the piece of this, I keep hearing people say this. I, I don't know why we haven't done an episode on this yet, or maybe we have and I've forgotten. <laughs> but I keep hearing people say agave was food. It was food, and yet. Like I've been told by Lalo um, and and other mescaleros that if you eat too much of it, you'll get explosive diarrhea, even if it is cooked. Yeah, so explain but, that to me. Well, I can explain that in the same way that uh, do you still remember the first time you came to Mexico? Back uh, yeah, in sure, the day, course, yeah, you were yeah, yeah. a young child. You didn't have the beard that you have now. You didn't <laughs> use glasses. Sure. And I'm sure you overate something that you loved here. It maybe it was the barbacoa, maybe it was the beans, but I'm pretty damn sure you overate something that your body was not very used to. No, I will not claim, at all. No, well, this happens to me every time I travel. I find something that I love, I overeat it, I feel like shit the next day. So, so what you're saying is the mescaleros, in essence, are saying don't overeat it. Like they eat it and they're fine. But they, just, they, they, there's uh, all these tourists, all these kids that don't quite are used to this, and not even themselves, uh, because they don't eat it as food in the same way that these communities that didn't have many other options in the desert used to. But anyways, we what we're interested in is alcohol, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, wonderful food that they used to, to, to cook it and whatever, and then somehow, somewhere around it, I mean, this is the story that we have all learned about fermentation, right? The beautiful gift of fermentation was given to them. We're not sure about exactly which god or which entity <laughs> was the, the, it was the definitely one. definitely a god or a saint at least. <laughs> yes, or, or some boys speaking through the mountains of any sort. But they discovered fermentation and they started doing uh, a few drinks out of it that were alcoholic. Now, really interesting thing. Our favorite character in this story, it's actually not made using cooked agave. So we've discussed about pulque, right? Uh, I don't know if in the U.S. people are familiar with what pulque is. Most are not. You better give like the little five-second description. description, yeah. So I I think like uh, 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 the wrong way to explain this will be saying that it is agave beer. Oh, really? Because I think it's the right way. I I think that'll be the wrong way because in in, in agave beer, like, sorry, uh, (laughs) in, uh, in beer, you have to malt wheat. Like there's all these processes that need to happen in order to make wheat fermentable. What huh. happens with pulque, it is, again, talking about gods and miracles, it's just something that, that it's crazy because basically you have this crazy looking huge agave in the middle of the desert. You wound its heart. You wound it in the middle of it. Well, and you're saying poor, wound, but you mean literally, like literally you, what you're doing is you're cutting a hole into that You're plane. carving. You're not cutting. You are carving a hole on the flesh of a poor innocent agave. And the poor innocent agave well, is throwing what it's, it's, it's I, blood. It's, I would it's, argue it's not poor. It's not innocent, but keep going. Is this process you're describing a little bit like extracting syrup from like a tree or? More, more violent. More violent, bigger hole. 
Much yeah, bigger yeah. bowl. Sh- sharper yeah. knives. Sharper knives, definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bigger <laughs> knives from the photos I've seen, yeah. yeah. So you're cutting this hole, and, you know, we're saying that if you want to chew it raw agave in the middle of the desert, you'll die from explosive diarrhea. And the thing is, agaves have this uh, defense mechanism in which it has very long chains of sugars that are not digestible by humans, cows, goats, whatever, but not even by itself. In order for agave to create new tissue, it has to break its own sugars. And then it like this, uh, this liquid will be able to create new tissue. So basically it's bleeding these beautiful f- fermentable sugars into the middle of its heart to create new tissue to heal itself. And somebody will go every morning, collect those sugars that are in the liquid form and wound it again. And then those sugars are prompt prompt to do atomic fermentation. And uh, so it has different phases. Uh, people here, they will ask you, like, do you want pulque or do you want aguamiel? Aguamiel, its translation will be honey water. And that's something that even kids will drink because it's not really alcoholic. It will be more in the in the realm of a kombucha, maybe like 0.5 ABB to maybe like 1 ABB. But then you start fermenting it and it starts changing drastically. It starts uh, losing its bubbles, it starts losing its sweetness, it starts getting a little bit thicker. And depending where you are in Mexico, because it's a product that is produced all around the country, uh, different communities will have different preferences. Some will like it thicker, some will like it sweeter. Uh, different communities will value different things in their pulque. So long story short, that is what we do know uh, from you archaeological. Could have done the short evi- part before all of that. Oh, yeah, no, sure. yeah. Well, this is what we know archaeologically, historically, anthropology that was consumed before the Spaniards came into the picture. It is not absolutely clear on how common it was. It, it was not. It's not clear if you were like a poor common Mexican if you were drinking pulque. Uh, it is slightly understood that it was a, a, a product of privilege. It was for priests. It was for politicians. It was from people that yield certain amount of power. But it is clear that this is something that happened before we had any external intervention, which is not as clear for distillation. There's a bunch of theories, but yeah. <laughs> oh, don't go down that road. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey. <laughs> I think we can continue down this road to a certain extent because at a certain point we have new power brokers in the Spaniards making their way to Mexico. And just as the colonial powers did all over the world, they brought a lot of things with them, some good, many not good. And this obviously shifted how everything socially, politically, economically, and also in terms of what people sort of consumed. And with that came other methods of creating alcoholic beverages that they brought from home. How did this sort of shift the existing dynamics that occurred within the making of beverages using agave? So, uh, and I'm, I'm going to take this really fast, Lou. I'm going to like just say stuff. I swear okay. to God. Okay, I want you to set your timer, Alexi. We're going to find out what right. fast means to the, Java. This is going to be so fast. <laughs> and it's just that I, I, I just, I just did an interview with somebody from Ecuador, which is Centrum like Central America, right? And, but back in the day, you know, borders are, are a thing today, but we're all brothers. Like it's, it's, you know, we're all part of the and same sisters. continuum. Yeah, brothers and sisters. Okay. And this kid was telling me that, just to answer your, your question, that in Ecuador, they don't call maguey or agave, maguey or agave. They call it penca. And it is because when the Spaniards came in, they had no interest in agave as a food source or an alcohol source. They were only interested in the leaves and they will make fibers to make rope out of it. 
So even the name of the agave itself was changed in certain places of America because of how the Spaniards understood it. In other ways, the, it, this, this was an absolute complete rupture in every possible way that you can imagine. Okay, Lou, it's your turn. That was no, fast. that was beautiful. <laughs> that was that was beautiful. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing what you're referring to, Alexi, is you want to talk about the distillation of of spirits. Yes, we can definitely jump into distillation because that's something that's sort of evolved over time, and different forces that came into Central America shifted some of the landscape to some extent uh, with that. Yeah. You know, and, and here again, like Java, I'm going to pass this over to you because yes. <laughs> you, you love the whole distillation and the changes and the folks from the Philippines who had nothing to do with the Filipino still, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, uh, I, I, I like to say that I like to read and write, and I am fortunate enough to have had access to a lot of uh, accounts of friends that have gone to universities. So I have <laughs> access to the JSTOR, EBSCO, all of the above without paying 30 bucks per article. So I'm, I'm a lucky kid. And uh, there's actually quite a, uh, I wouldn't say vast, but it, it, there is a healthy amount of bibliography that uh, delves into these things. And I think like after reading quite a bit of it, uh, my, my biggest conclusion that I think that makes the most sense for the people that I know, it's that, you know, when you talk about scotch or bourbon or eau de vie or uh, certain other traditions of distillation, you usually think about one type of distillation technology, and that is uh, connected to a coil. You have a, 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 a pot, usually made of some sort of metal, and then you evaporate and it's condensed on a coil. Crazy insane thing that, that explains sort of the melting pot that Mexico was in terms of distillation technologies is that we have that. We have a, the European tradition of distillation, but we also have so much stuff that if you trace it back, it looks Korean, it looks Mongolian, it looks Filipino, and then you have multitude and by a multitude I, say, I will say like more than 50 variations of both things and sometimes they they get mixed you go to durango and you see something like looks like a like a mongolian steel connected to to a serpentine so there's a bunch of speculation of who got here how did they travel and nah, nah. what i'm more interested at least today because i'm not a historian it's the results that it had and the results that it had at least in my impression or my understanding, is that we have the most diverse set of technologies in terms of distillation in the planet playing with agave spirits. You know, I'm just, I'll add on top of that. I, I agree 100% with the, the interest part. But to me, the, the amazing thing is you get so many people asking the question, was, was distillation brought over to Mexico by the Spanish, by the Europeans? Or did they have it beforehand? And this is a big debate in the tiny little bubble uh, that is the Mezcal community. And to me, like that's that's not the interesting question. The, the more interesting question, and I think the more relevant question is, why is it that in the rest of the world, you can find a handful of examples of places where they continue to distill using pre-industrial methods? But when you travel around rural Mexico, you see it everywhere it's so predominant even even in places like jalisco right where they had to ramp up production of tequila um for the global market when the the 1893 world's fair everybody was like oh my god what is this stuff the industrialization of spirits kind of started at that point because of tequila mm. and yet you just go 10 15 20 miles away from that epicenter <laughs> and they still got 
They still got their wood-fired copper stills with hollowed-out tree trunks as their condensers. It's crazy. It is like if you were in the middle of the of Wall Street and then 20 miles away from it, the people were still trading in gold coins. That's <laughs> or, the, or, that. or, or, or beaver pelts, more like beaver yeah, pelts. Like, yeah. I don't know what that is, but sure, yeah. <laughs> we can speculate a little bit on some of the attributing forces to why that exists, because that is something that's very unique to this part of the world and to these types of spirits. Obviously, we can assume that there's more out there. It's convenient to say that based on our disposition. Is this because of sort of the role that these producers play in their community? Is it due to tradition? Is it a combination of these things like... Like, I always think that there's a lot of different forces at play that keep things the way that they are. And typically, it's some type of connection to economy, politics, and community in some way. Yeah, you know, I I, I think all of that's correct. Um, it's never one thing. Mm-hmm. But the piece of it that fascinates me the most, and it's, it's the reason that I started Sacred uh, back in... What, what is Sacred, Senor Lu? Well, I'm profane. You're sacred. (laughs) So uh, sacred is a not-for-profit that helps improve quality of life in the rural Mexican communities where heritage agave spirits uh, are made. And, you know, it's I I run nonprofits here in Chicago for a living. That's what I do. Sacred is is my hobby. I don't make money uh, running sacred. And, you know, one of the things that I found is if you approach a uh, a cause from uh, the angle not of we need to help these people but rather these people are a resource that can help all of us as a society that th- that tends to make more sense in how you roll out your programming so my point here that relates back to what you asked Alexi my point here is these communities not all of them but the ones that really do capture my 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 heart and my interest are the ones that are continuing these multi-generational traditions of of utilizing pre-industrial methods to distill spirits, to ferment and distill spirits. They're utilizing these because they have a different world approach. The way that they look at the world is, how do I get the best result? And the question of, of efficiency generally isn't even even brought up like if something happens to be efficient great but (laughs) it really it's about the result of that thing whereas the world that i live in it's all about it's all about efficiency and i'm not saying that that world is bad that my world is bad and we all need to go back to being subsistence farmers but i am saying you know i i think if we're going to solve problems like food insecurity and water insecurity um and climate change things like this that we need to have more conversations with those communities and those communities that are making these spirits that are shepherding the this multi-generational wisdom these communities are at risk of disappearing as a result of all of our interest in tequila and mezcal we're we're literally threatening this it's like loving it to death because as we drink more and more and more mezcal, we tend to be drinking 92.7% of all mezcal made in 2020, right? Was made from farmed espadine. From farmed what, is espadine? Ma- what is espadine? What is espadine? Is one of two to 300 kinds of agave. God bless you, Chava. Oh, yeah. Um, so I am blessed. Yes, you are. <laughs> so um, it, it's made from this farmed espadine agave that's turning that's turning Oaxaca because 90% of that comes out of Oaxaca, that's turning Oaxaca 
into the same kind of monoculture that Jalisco has become as a result of tequila. And these families who have been shepherding this multi-generational wisdom, they can't access the agave anymore because these multinational liquor companies, and I'm not saying that they're bad companies, they're doing what they're supposed to do in a capitalist environment. They are fulfilling our demand for mezcal made from farmed espadine. That's what we keep asking for. But as a result, these families who have been shepherding this multi-generational wisdom are having a hard time accessing agave. And I don't think we can afford to lose their multi-generational wisdom because I think that's what's going to save us from food insecurity, water insecurity, and climate change. So, I mean, and, uh, I, and I, I don't disagree with uh, Senor Luz Gospel that he just enumerated, but I think the, the, the question was, why the hell has this survived? Everything what? points out. At, I mean, I mean, you just sort of touched. It. I mean, I like how you phrased it and stuff. But I, but I think like, uh, let me just say it in a different way. Sure. Right? I might be saying the same as you said, but let me just like give, give it, give it a try. So I think that in a way, that a community makes traditional mezcal is sort of a marker. It is a marker that a lot of other things are happening. It means that the community it's behaving a certain way that it has certain understanding of the of, of its fields of its biodiversity of its ecosystems of their families. So I mean, don't get us wrong, we love a mezcal, but I think that sometimes we have conversations that we're saying like, you know what, like we don't really are that interested in mezcal. We love everything that the fact that a community that that implies mezcal that comes with the package of mezcal. So it's it's just a very convenient poster child, right? Like if we're talking about mm -hmm. clay, let's say Lou and I decide to do exactly the same that we're doing, but with clay pots, right? We become uh, obsessed with ceramics. And I've done this. I work with glass, <laughs> I work with ceramics. So every time we'll and, come to to a group of people, it's like, and, hey guys, have you heard about ceramics? Amazing artisans, na 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 na. They're like, uh, meow, whatever's. It's not a great poster child. But when you have... Mezcal as a foster child, it is easier to communicate a lot of the things that you're really interested in, interested in. How has mezcal and agave spirits captured people's imagination? I think, you know, honestly, I think that something that you eat or you drink, you don't perceive it, right? Like if you go to a museum, there's zero chances that you're going to die unless there's an earthquake and like it falls upon you. But you're never going to die from seeing a painting. But when you eat or drink something, the world is entering inside you. It's the ultimate act of fate, right? Like eating or drinking something that somebody did. So it's, it's chemically transforming you. So I think that it's such a powerful thing that people get it. Like we have intuitions. We were all born with intuitions. So I think like what's, when you get in contact with, in chemical contact with something that powerful, people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't know like what am I feeling, but this is touching me in a way that no other thing has touched me in, in a long time. That is my, that is my theory. That's what happened to me. I'd say that that's right. But I think there's also this just general movement where now that we all carry these computers in our pockets, that literally are more powerful than the tools they use to send man to the moon, right? I, I think there's this, this intuition that tells us we, we need to move away from that to some extent. You know, I think it's the reason that so many people are homebrewing, right? We're starting to do more things by hand, by ourselves. And spirits is one of the areas where, particularly in the USA, because it's illegal to do it at home, <laughs> it, where people don't really do that. And I think to have that experience mm. 
of, you know, you spend your entire life drinking something like Jack Daniels and, you know, no, no offense to Jack Daniels. It's fine, but it's, it's made pickle by bag. machines. With a pickle bag. With a pickle Jack, bag. Yeah, That's right. Thanks, thanks. That's a lovely way to consume <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but you, you know, it's, it's made by machines and you can tell it's made by machines because every single time you taste it, it tastes exactly the same. And then suddenly you start getting this weird, crazy stuff that has this broad spectrum of flavors. You can have one, mm. you can have a, a Tobala made by Victor Ramos and Miawatlan that was done in March of 2020. And then you have one that was made in December of 2020 by him using the exact same tools, exact same process. And they're so significantly different in flavor. And I think you sort of taste that hard heartbeat. You taste the hands involved in making it. And I think that's why people get excited because they recognize this is moving away from these devices that are great, really useful tools, but we it's sort of part of our humanity is in every bottle. And I mean, just to add to that, because you could make sort of a little bit of the same argument with wine, right? That it changes every vintage. But in wine, yeah. you're drinking four months of information that that grape took to grow in environments that are not that different to the ones that you already know. In agave, you are drinking four to 20 plus years of information that that plant collected of areas that are so distinct to any place you've ever been to. So it, it, it is like reading and like it's suddenly like if you were able to read a language, like just one day you woke up and you're able to read a language you never thought you could and you can understand this story that nobody has ever told you. As someone who's a little more familiar with beer, it was spontaneous fermentation that really like sort of sent me over the edge with beer and understanding Belgian lambic and tasting beer that is aged for a certain amount of time. And it's made with the same exact ingredients in a certain region, but everyone's working with the same stuff, but the flavors are very, very different. And so there's a sense of place to it. And that totally blew my mind as someone who hadn't really experienced that and the realm of flavors to it. And the first time I tried it was like Bosque Cider and Mezcal, where I found the same realm of whether it was like citrus flavors or like the blue cheese flavors, where I found all of those things that I thought, wow, this is really cool. Like I'm ready to start throwing down on this and checking it out. There's the story aspect behind Mezcal of the origin and the community and some of these things that we'll talk about in a moment with Sacred. There's just something very romantic with the clandestine nature of it by our standards living in cities. Like to us, someone out on a mountain making something with a horse going around in circles. And I mean, that's romantic as shit to us, you know? <laughs> so for us, getting alcohol is going to a store. That's not romantic. So there's so many interesting sort of story things, but it was the flavor that I think a lot of people are interested in once they taste something that's beyond what the market tells us. So the market says mezcal is supposed to taste a certain way. And one could argue that larger manufacturers of it seek to perpetuate that in some way because that's what the market expects. But people also exceed it. And that's where the wow can happen. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's right. Um, but I also think, you know, right, not right now, but last year, oh, no, no, two years ago, 2020, you know, Mescal was only 1.9% of tequila by volume. <laughs> and I, I, I think a lot of the pains that we're seeing, the growing pains that we're seeing, um, are these brands that are trying to accommodate the growth of the market. And it's been explosive growth year on year. And again, like I'm not... I'm not knocking the companies because everybody's demanding it. What are you going to give them? What are you going to give them? 
You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Lou Bank and Chava Periban in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorch Tundra Present shows at scorchtundra.com slash tickets. And be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorch Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, Find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment and back to our conversation with Lou Bank and Chava Periban. Lou, you gave an interesting statistic in terms of Mezcal being a very small percentage of that sort of sector of Bev alcohol. Give a little more into what the making is like for contemporary Mezcal and spirits in terms of like the farming and what this demand is doing to the communities and to the industry in Mexico. Well, you know, I, I, I'd say that the... Um the the piece every every brand I shouldn't say every brand most every brand tells the romantic story of mezcal, but there and there's a piece of it that I really do think is romantic uh, in in every single circumstance, which is just simply as as Chava was pointing out, the source material the sugars come from this this plant mm. that takes a minimum of four years to reach maturity. Like, I don't care what other alcohol you're talking about, unless you've got a bottle of CH Distillery's really rare spirit that was distilled from fermented maple syrup, you're talking about a sugar source that takes a maximum of one season to reach maturity. One season, four months to six months, right? But when you're talking about agave, the minimum is four years. And as Chavez says, like he he describes it as information, um, yeah. <laughs> which, which I think is very accurate, right? That how many how many droughts did it live through? How many um, uh, tumultuous rains well, did it, it live it is, through? It is like a recording machine that you live out in the desert, and it's fighting for its life, and you get to to breathe or to consume all of that struggle and and all and now also, him, yeah but also all of those defense mechanisms that you yeah. like to talk about why yeah, didn't you I talk about it. the defense well, mechanisms I, I, I got distracted but yeah like uh, so uh we were interviewing a guy that made his phd on metabolism of this was agaves ivan saldana yeah ivan saldana correct and yeah. he was saying that you know again agaves are growing in very adverse uh contexts so they have they have to defend themselves from all kinds of pests and what the the agave plant has evolved to do us. It, <laughs> we being the worst of the pests, but yeah. also worms and a bunch of different insects. So it has created what he called bioweapons that uh, do like natural pesticides that will attract some insects, will scare other insects away. And what he said, what I thought was brilliant, is like, this is like if nature decided to give us a natural gene. All these botanicals that gene makers always like, oh, I added a little bit of this botanical, a little bit of the other botanical. <laughs> they are already embedded in the agave plant. You just have to ferment it, distill it, and extract all that beautiful information. So I, that, that's why I like to use the word information, Senor Lu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Um, wait, but what was the question? Well, the, the question is, like, <laughs> like delve a little bit more into the production. And I think oh, you're, you're, right. you're, you're, you're going to see that, uh, that we're going to struggle with this because 
Uh, and, and I'm going to make you a favor in this, Senor Lu, before you go ahead, because a lot of times we'll ask production depending where you are. We're going to do a, like a general characterization of how a normal mezcal will be done. That oh, most no, of the no, people if, in, the, if oh. we're going to do that, then you have to do that so I can, I can buzz you like when you say buck? things that okay. are, yeah. See, like the problem is, the problem is just as you were talking about that horse with the big stone wheel, <laughs> like that is a generalization that's not entirely accurate, right? So you, you have to, that agave, Chava already mentioned, that really is the romantic piece to every every mezcal on the market. There's no mezcal where yeah, it's yeah, just but, but, six months. But, 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 but even I did some dumb characterizations where I said most of it grows in deserts and that is absolutely not true. <laughs> a, a lot of them grow in areas that are absolutely not desertic and they have a lot of water and you're like, how the hell is an agave growing here? And then you start visiting more places and you realize that the agave plant can grow in a number of ecosystems that you wouldn't imagine. And then how you harvest the, the plant, I guess that's more or less common. Uh, but I think the first question actually is, is it wild agave? Is it farmed agave? Did you go out into the mountains trying to find agave? Or did yep. you buy a plot of land and you planted it with agave and waited and tended a little bit to it until it was time to harvest it? And then when you harvest it, you basically just cut the leaves, right? What you're interested in that has the highest amount of sugars is the piña, the pineapple. It has the, uh, heart. Looks like the heart. The heart. It looks like a pineapple, therefore the, the name. And so you shave off all the leaves and some or at people- at least a large portion. Uh, yeah, and, and then there's a whole different discussion there. We're not going to go down that road. No, 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 yeah, we're not going to go there. And then you're going to cook it. You have these long chains of sugars and you need to break them down to make them fermentable. Uh, well, to be, to make cheese, being able to eat them, cheese, humans, goats, cows. And there's many ways to cook it. You can cook it underground with an earthen oven that uses wood and stones. And Buried it's like, like a, a pig. Like a pig in Hawaii, according to yeah. Senor Lu, which I've never seen, but I happen <laughs> to trust him. Uh, or you can use a, a, a autoclave, which is like a, you, how do you call that in English? Like a, it's, just, just, it's just like a giant pressure cooker. But, pressure you know, cooker. But you can also cook it in an above ground oven. Right? Yeah, made like out a of masonry bricks. oven. Yeah. yeah. Or and it's uh, oftentimes fueled like, you know, wood fired or sometimes not wood fired using steam instead of just heat, right? Yeah, so or you can use a super high-tech thing called a diffuser. Diffuser. Yeah, we need some crazy sound Where's effects Roy? for this guy. I need some yeah. help, <laughs> but uh and that basically does uh it people are gonna hate me for saying this, but it sort of mimics the process that I described in Pulque. It uses enzymes to break the sugars, uh yeah, with, with so chemics or it, or it acids. Yeah, it'll shred that raw agave and then use those enzymes. To break to the sugars. Yeah. And then uh, after you have it cooked, it's mom a moment to ferment it. And you can ferment it in an enclosed container, in an open container, with uh, perfectly calibrated bought yeasts, with naturally occurring yeasts. You might want to add a little bit of pulque into it to <laughs> call some friends into the party to make it uh, taste better and uh, ferment faster. You might want to ferment it underground in, a, in some uh, like holes in the ground that are made out of stone and they look like coffins, depending where you are and how hard and harshly the temperature changes because you want to protect the yeasts. And uh, you might want to ferment it for 21 days 
days or three days. Or you just might wanna, three hours or six hours, depending <laughs> on where you are. You might want to use accelerators like nitrogen, which is not a common practice. You might want to use some barks that you found into the woods that you discovered that can accelerate fermentation. There's or you just add your champagne yeast. You can do that too. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're in tequila country, that, that's a rather common thing to do. And then one of the most uh, controversial things in the making of mezcal is when do you decide that that fermentation tank is ready to be distilled? And if you're going to talk with a mezcalero about when they fought with their brother to death with a machete, it's usually because one of them said it's ready and the other one said no. It's half an hour until it is ready. You, and you, you, you know, I just I want to put a fine point on this piece because it's the one that fascinates me. And I'm guessing for the the home fermenters listening, it'll fascinate them as well. Because, you know, you've got this. How many liters do you think are in the standard open air wooden fermenter? Chava? In Oaxaca, I will say a thousand liters. So a thousand liters. You've got a thousand liters. And let's say you're distilling in a clay pot. Your clay pot can hold what? 50, 60 liters while you're distilling? Yeah, correct. Okay, so you're taking your tapache, your ferment, right? And you're putting in this 50, 60 uh, 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 liter clay pot. You've got a thousand liters to go. It's already hit the point at which you think it's time to start distilling. And it's going to take you somewhere between, what, 36 and 48 hours to finish distilling, depending on, on how many stills you have? And how many Red Bulls you consume? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Or Monster. <laughs> God bless yeah. Monster. So, so what's my point? My point is, you know, once you've, if you've got open air fermentation, once that fermentation has started to slow down, you know, the, the world is full of all of this beautiful bacteria, including acetic acid bacteria that's just waiting to jump in there and do its job, which is to eat alcohol and spit out vinegar. Right. So these guys, when they're, when Chava is saying they're fighting with machetes, it's because literally if you wait too long, somewhere in the middle of your distillation, what's left in that fermenter is going to turn into salad dressing. Yeah. And it, it also, even if it doesn't become so into salad dressing, yeah. <laughs> it, it's going to be very acid. The flavor is going to be off. Uh, this, it's just not going to be nice. And this is, you know, this gets back to the, the question you asked us earlier, Alexi, about, you know, why do they, why do they do it this way, you know, in these communities, you know, <sighs> It's funny, you, you, the first time I saw this, I thought, oh, well, this guy doesn't understand that there's such a thing as closed fermentation, or uh, he doesn't have the money to buy a closed fermenter. But the Mexican government will give you free steel fermenters, and these guys use it, what you say, they use it to make chicken coops, Java? That made me laugh. Beautiful chicken houses, you know, yeah. with a pool and a jacuzzi and a complete, like, home theater. But they, they just, they, right? So they have the tool, they have the knowledge they just have no interest and we're we're not even like and so then okay so then distillation separation so, of alcohol from water uh, uh, something uh, critical though in fermentation sometimes you will only use the juice that you pressed out of the agave like if it was orange juice like you cold pressing your orange <laughs> juice sometimes you will use fibers sometimes you will use all the fibers that were a result sometimes you will use part of the fibers you know, sometimes you will uh, actually mix it while it's being fermented. At the middle of the fermentation, you're going to add hot water to like sort of giving a turbo boost and mix it all up. Sometimes you won't. So, but let's say you have your mosto, they call it mosto or like your, your must ready to go into distillation. And then which tool are you going to be using? Are you going to use Asian influence uh, alembics? Are you going to use European tradition? Are you going to use stainless steel if you're going for the European tradition? Are you going to use copper? Uh, are you going to use a big one, a small one? Uh, for are you going to use a column still? 
We know, Correct. We, we know folks using column stills, making mezcal. But something really cool about mezcal is that I will claim that 95% of the makers they say they're still using direct fire. So they're not using steam jackets to distill their spirit. They're still using either some sort of wood, charcoal, propane, but there is a naked flame touching that steel. And you know, it's, it's funny. So Chava's saying this, and I don't know if he's saying it because he wants to push my button or not. But the rule... <laughs> The rule, in fact, is if you make artisanal mezcal, so there's, you know, there's mezcal, there's artisanal mezcal, there's ancestral mezcal. Um, and wait, 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 what is all of that? Those are the different categories that the denomination of origin has established in order to separate, say, qualities or preciousness of the different agaves. Ancestral being the most precious because it's supposedly done with the most ancient ways, then artisanal being second in line, and just plain mezcal being sort of like its industrial version, right? Did I say yeah. something wrong, Lou? Okay. No, no, no that's that, that's <laughs> all right. And um, and it's funny because you you read the definitions, and I just was literally visiting <laughs> distilleries uh, a couple weeks ago in Mexico that are certified as artisanal, and they're using steam jackets on their uh, stills. That's what I said. Ninety five, ninety five percent. Well, no, no, no. I get that, but it, but it's against the rules. If you read yeah. the, the definition yeah, of artisanal, yeah, yeah. you're not allowed to use steam jacket. And I, you know, that's, I think that's why it's 95%. But then you, you go to a place and you see the steam jacket and they're producing what's called artisanal mezcal. Well, it's then it's labeled like artisanal. Yeah, let's yeah. say it's not the most tightly regulated thing in the planet. Well, it's, you it's, know, and it's, it's confusing. It's confusing for consumers yeah, to know yeah. what they're getting. It's hard. In terms of the appellation of order, which you're talking about, the domain protection in these terms, there's varying levels of adherence maybe to the specific tenets of it. But are there other sorts of issues with it in terms of, are there certain producers that can access that or that are a part of those classes of production I mean, is that something you have to pay for? Man, that's a hot, Alexi, hot Alexi, question. You know, dude, I, I don't know if we want to... Ju- okay, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time <laughs> on this, Lou. Let, let's just say, let's just start from the point that it is a tremendously controversial thing because <laughs> the kids that were in charge of writing these rules, these, uh, these rules that will allow for your mezcal to be labeled in a certain way and supposedly will help the consumer to better understand what they're drinking. Let's say their interests were uh, slightly skewed to privilege uh, the middle major uh, producers of these things. Oh, I think so, that's unfair. Uh, well, and that's not unusual for people that write rules. They tend to have a certain interest in them. Yes, and let, let's just say it was uh, the UNESCO wouldn't be very proud of their. It's funny. I think that's so unfair, Chava. I, uh, I, I honestly, I'm not going to speculate on their intentions. But I will say, I think it's a mistake that so many of these small producers, you know, forget about these small producers. I can't name 10 brands that are owned solely by the person who makes the spirit that's in the bottle. And I think that's a mistake because it then puts the control of that word mezcal in the hands of the people who are not the people who have been shepherding this multi-generational wisdom for centuries. Yeah, it's a but I guess, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not opposed but, but, to, like, I'm but, but, friends but with then, so many of these brands that, that are those people I'm talking about who don't make it. I'm not opposed to that, but I think it's, I think it's a, a dangerous game we're playing when we take the word away from the families that really do 
own it. That earn okay, it. Let, let me rephrase this. Uh, I think we both, Lou and I agree in the fact that the denomination of origin, the way that it's been written and the, been, the way that it's being exercised, it's not doing a lot to protect the heritage that makes these spirits so nuanced are delicious. Uh, it is not, if we use the denomination of origin as a tool to try to preserve and evolve these practices to a place that we think it's fortunate, that, that is not its function. Its function is more linked to, to make it commercially more visible, to make it, uh, it has more of a commercial intention than a preservation and or, or innovation intention. Will you agree with me, Senor Lu, on that one? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, okay. I, yeah. There you go. Yeah. That was fast. That was fast. Okay, Alexi, now, <laughs> now we can change the theme. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> it's one of these things where people view things like DO in a lot of different ways. It's in some cases viewed as a sign of quality. In some cases, it's some type of geographic protection, which the Lambic producers in Belgium love to describe in terms of that things can only be called this if they're from a specific area. You know, there's commercial interest in doing that and also cultural interest. These are claims that are sort of tied together. I'm just kind of curious as to who benefits from having this be DO and is it something that all of the producers benefit from or is it just kind of makes things more confusing to something that's already very complex and hard to characterize, which is what we've been dancing around is that this is hard to characterize and complex. And so should there really be thousands of different domains or is it really fair to have one that either you're in or you're out. No, there should be appellations per region. It will be so easy if that was yeah. the case. We yeah, will be mezcal, talking about where mezcal, mezcal is really, it's a category like whiskey is. Yeah, but then there, like in wine, there should be appellations mm -hmm. per region. You'll yeah. be able to talk about the Central Valley's mezcal that has this specific set of, uh, of, of things that, that give it a common ground, then you should be able to talk about the Mixteca Baja mezcal from the side of Puebla that give like, because they have all this stuff in common, you can, you know, the it's, it's easy to, the, this, yeah, yeah, that, that, that is, I think something that will honor, uh, and give transparency to the complexity that the spirits hold. Let's bring this conversation forward to the work that Sacred is doing and talk a little bit about how you're sort of working with different communities, how you're supporting communities. Just tell me about this sort of efficient world idea that I see a lot in sort of on your website and in the work that you do. I mean, what does that mean and how does that sort of connect to us learning from other parts of the world and making things better? Well, it, the the story that I, I I like to tell because it's it's, it's the best story I've found so far um, that describes this is, you know, in in Santa Catarina Minas, Eduardo Anelas uh, Lalo, who I think I mentioned earlier, um, Lalo saw that the the town had two problems. One was like every five, six, seven years, uh, he'd have drought. They'd have drought. Uh, and when there's drought, of course, there's no work because there's no farming. When there's no farming and no work, all of the adult males. A lot of the adult males leave to make money to send back home. Um, but then every seven, eight, nine years, you'd get these El Nino rains and there'd be mudslides and it would devastate the town. And he showed this to me in 2016 where he had spent years, I think they were built in 2013. They had spent, he had spent years convincing the women in town to build stone walls of like a foot, foot and a half high up and down these mountain ranges that surround the community. And so now it would rain 
the water would pool as a result of those stone walls and you'd get this enriched soil where suddenly now you got trees and you got grass that's growing. And so there's no more mudslides, right? But the water that does filter down through those walls ends up going to these natural ravines that the men spent two weeks capping building um, building dams, right? So you've got this basically this, this two to four week volunteer work in the community that results in I, I think he I think he told me it was 49 reservoirs when I first saw it in 2016 that he believed had about three years worth of water in them. When I went back in 2017, They'd only had eight days of rain and they had about 20% of their water left. So not three years, but enough for a bad year. But at the same time, I'm back here in Chicago listening to, to the NPR stations, WBEZ, and they're interviewing a woman in California state government about these impending El Nino rains that are threatening to devastate rural Californian communities. And the reporter asked, well, is the silver lining maybe that this ends the drought that California has been looking at for years? And the woman from, from California government said, no, there's, there's no, there's no way to capture those rains. And, you know, and, and, and the truth is, well, obviously there is a way they figured it out in Santa Catarina Minas, but mm-hmm. are you going to get a bunch of Californians volunteer? Actually, you probably could <laughs> get a bunch of Californians <laughs> volunteering for two to four weeks building these kinds of infrastructure projects. My, my point being, again, there's this different approach to the world and the way that, you know, when, when we looked in the, the when I, I was a, I'm a kid from the 60s, so when I was growing up in the 70s, I can remember everybody talking about uh, zero population growth. And we stopped talking about it when we figured out factory farming in the 80s. It's a solution to the problem. But it's it's not a long term solution. I, I think there's this holistic way that these communities oftentimes look at the world that we do not. And I think we need to have more conversations with them if we're going to continue to develop as a species on this planet. There's always something that we can learn from people in other places. And just because we have more technology or things that we think make us further along doesn't necessarily mean that we have all the answers to everything that's out there. I take away that word necessarily. We, we clearly do not. <laughs> we keep, you know, I'm part of this. I'm part of this. We keep screwing it up. So, so let's have broader conversations. You know, the, the, the phrase that I keep hearing is build a bigger table. Yeah, we need a much bigger table and we need to include these diverse voices that have solved some of these problems within their tiny communities. Give me a flavor of what some of your efforts look like to not only build a bigger table, but to put some chairs there too for people. Amen. I, I think ahead, that well, I, I think one of my favorite projects right now is the one that uh, that we're making in Jalisco, in partnership with Mesonte. And so, as Lou was telling you, and we're making this joke about you know Jalisco being the Wall Street of tequila, and at the same time, very close by, people are still using centuries-old technologies to make alcohol. And uh, one problem that they have right now is because you need a bunch of the same agave you have a lot of monoculture systems there. And we all know what that means, right? Uh, that means like you go up into the mountain and you kill everything that is not something that you can sell and you replace it with this thing that you can sell. And what we're trying to do right now with that program, which is called Replanting Jalisco, is to bring back some of the wild species of agaves that are endemic to the region and also to start 
you know, making these pockets of wild land that are so necessary if we are planning to survive for 500 years more. So I, th- I think right now that is one of, one of my favorite projects. Yeah, it's, it's basically what he's talking about. It's three greenhouses, um, and the greenhouses are being built and staffed and, uh, by families who have been making these spirits for you know, five, six, seven generations. Um, they're growing from seed four varieties of agave that are at risk, including uh, Blue Weber, the, the one that's used to make tequila, and then uh, three varieties of trees that are at risk. Um, as they're being torn out of the ground to plant more blue Weber, and um, and as they're being chopped up uh, as fuel to uh, to make tequila, and um, and then they're placed on these lands that are owned by these these um, these families that are being encroached upon by these blue Weber farms. Um, so it's it's literally trying to preserve the tradition in the middle of as as we're talking about how hot mezcal is. I mean tequila. It's not exactly stagnant. It's been growing significantly, and it's putting all of these things at risk. So, yeah, I love that. I love that program as well, Chava. And it's and it's a reflection of a program that we've been running since our beginning in 2017 um, uh, in Oaxaca, where we've been buying seedlings, agave seedlings, tobala variety seedlings, um, from this middle school in Zachila, a community that's literally um, located on a garbage dump site, the garbage dump site um, in Oaxaca. Uh, you, you've got these families who in the 60s, 70s started locating there um, because they could jump into the garbage dump, pull out recyclables, sell them to a middleman. That's how they'd make their money. So they started squatting there. And it's a community of now some twelve to 15,000 people. The middle school had an agriculture program because they're squatters. The government wasn't giving them the full resources they did to the other side of town that wasn't squatters. They ran out of water and they had to figure out, okay, so what can we teach these kids when we don't have water? Uh, and they figured out we can teach them how to grow agave. So we so we buy these seedlings from the school. It's an economic arrangement. This isn't a gift. Um, we buy these seedlings for one U.S. dollar each. Um, and then we gift them in groupings of 500 to 750 to the families who are having a hard time accessing agave as a result of all of the farms being bought up by the multinational companies. So, you know, we're doing two things at once, right? We're providing a future resource of agaves to these families who are having a hard time accessing agave, but then we're also supporting this community of recyclers uh, who have now been able to build a library uh, as a result, added to their school as a result of the money that they've earned selling us seedlings. And literally the the tensions between the two sides of the town, the squatters and the non-squatters, um, the tensions are almost non-existent. The, that same government that cut off the water supply has given them more land uh, to expand this program because they see the benefits uh, that are coming to the community. So and that sounds that's, like that's a lot, right, Alexi? And we're still doing crazier projects right now. We're, uh, <laughs> we, we, have, we have an insane partnership now with 818 Tequila, and we are uh, making... Uh, Adobe bricks out of the waste produced by their factory. Well, we're, so we're not. Fibers. Chava and I couldn't well, make a brick of, yeah, to no, save no. our lives, but 
yeah, we're we're uh, we're facilitating uh, people that know how to do these things uh, to be able to do that. And we are building. I mean, uh, the project just started, and we just have announced two different projects. One is a library. One is strengthening the infrastructure of a. Uh, it's called Tachica, uh, which is a distillery. It's a palenque in Jalisco for a producer that is also like seventh, eighth generation, God knows which generation of, of making these spirits. Well, he says fifth, but there is no freaking way. He, like he remembers five generations. He might be 10, 12. Like God knows. So we're also making really exciting stuff uh, with them. And I think we'll have a lot more details in the future. But right now it's just pure heading. For listeners, we'll have some links in the episode notes to some of these initiatives that we've spoken about. Make sure you head over there and check it out. You work with some local breweries and to use some agave that you've helped source, one of them being with a guest on the show before, Mike Schlau from Iswas. You've supplied him with some agave. How does that sort of process work from your end? Yeah, Mike's Mike's great. Mike Mike and I were we we met because we're mutual friends with the uh, the the gang over at Dark Matter Coffee, and uh, we happened to end up sitting next to each other at one of their dinners, and uh, and just really struck it off. And he was kind enough to uh, to to pay attention to this old old man. I'm the oldest guy at the table, and he's willing to talk to me about agave spirits. Uh, so I, I we put together a deal when he was at Pipeworks where I brought a bunch of agave, cooked agave back with me um, from Mexico. The, the, the Illinois Liquor Control Commission has shut me down from bringing a lot of alcohol back. That's a much longer story. Um, so I had to find other things to go into my, my suitcases. And so I just start carrying, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds of cooked agave back from Mexico and give it to them. And, uh, and they started doing these special beers. So the one that we, we just did uh, with is was that I think was literally just released last month, December, I think of 2021, we brought back a bunch of uh, cooked cupriata. That's another kind of agave uh, from Michoacan from our friends at La Luna Mezcal. Yes, Chava's also from Michoacan. I'm from Michoacan, best state in the belly button of the world. You know, like there's <laughs> theories that maybe the meteorite that landed and killed the dinosaurs, had it landed on Michoacan, nothing will have happened. Anyways, Michoacan, <laughs> awesome place. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so we sourced it from our friends at La Luna Mezcal from Michoacan. Um, and uh, and then we, we, I think it was actually 100 pounds this time. We gave... 50 pounds to Mike and then another 50 pounds to our new friends at Yeast of Eden over in uh, in California and uh, said okay guys go go make beer with them and uh, and so Mike Mike used this time around he used it instead of just as a flavoring agent actually used the sugars from that cooked agave uh, as I think he said it was roughly 30% of the fermentable sugars Oof. in his mash and love it. Yeah. Have you, have you tasted it yet, Alexa? Yes, I have. And I'm just pulling up a little more information about the beer. The second time he's made the beer called Maestro, a Saison, which he lists as with roasted agave hearts. And you're correct. And that is a very interesting thing because one of the things that producers that make beers like he does do is they're always looking for some sort of secondary fermentation agent, you know, some type of sugar source. And Belgians have a lot of different ideas on what you do with that. Lambic producers have 
some ideas as well. And for Mike, I think this is interesting because it's a different source altogether than cane or candy sugar or some of these other things. And so for someone who's very curious like him, he gets sense of place in his beer and he also gets a little bit of like unknown and he likes that a lot. Yeah, it's got, you know, I mean, obviously it's the sugar, but there's got to also be all this bacteria Mm. that I brought back from Mexico, (laughs) right? If your bag was cold, if the big temperature shocks did anything, I would wonder. I could tell you this, the day that uh, that I split up the 100 pounds into two 50-pound allotments, right? I just, just handed it off to Mike, right? That was in a cooler. That's pretty mm-hmm. simple. But then the guys at Yeast of Eden in California, I had to, had to ship it FedEx. And so I vacuum sealed it and put it into a couple of boxes. I'm out to dinner uh, with my my wife and uh, one of our friends, and I, I get a couple of calls from an unknown number on my cell phone. So I the third time I answer it, and it's FedEx who's freaking out because one of the boxes is literally exploding. <laughs> they said that, like the 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 vacuum seal had like it, it was it was fermenting in the vacuum seal in a way that was blowing out the sides of the box. And that's how fermentation used to work hundreds of years ago. And and still does in rural Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, point being, like, you just know there's a lot of other stuff going on in that in that bottle. And to me, like, it's beautiful. I I I can't really drink beer because I'm gluten intolerant, but I cheat whenever Mike brings stuff over to me, and it tastes to me. You know, it's funny that we started this conversation with Chava talking about it being a pulque being more like a wine than a beer, though I don't know that he ever said that, but. Mm. You didn't, but that's what you were headed toward, yeah? Hey, yeah, sort of, I'll okay. take it. I'll, yeah, I'll sure. take that I said it, yeah. Because it tastes to me like a wine. It tastes, uh-huh. you know, it's, there's this phrase that um, that comes up a lot is uh, vino de mezcal. You, when you walk, go around uh, Mexico, people talk, you know, you, you, if you're in Durango, they offer you a glass of vino and it's always distilled agave. It's vino de mezcal. But I, I, I have to wonder if that, phrase didn't come as a result of literally it being a wine where they were making because you know in some communities they would use the word mezcal to refer to the plant so was it really just vino de mezcal was it just the wine of the mezcal just fermented cooked agave just fermented that was cooked pressed. Agave. Yeah, yeah yeah pressed the pressed juice of fermented cooked agave yeah and i you know it, it just it tastes so beautiful and elegant to me in a way that was unexpected and I have to say, when I used to work in distillation, if you were really hangover, you would go to the fermentation tanks, get a big glass, get a chunk of that fermented tank, drink it, best cure. <laughs> that sounds lovely. I would, I would, uh, I'd take that hungover or not. That sounds awesome. <laughs> right. That was great. <laughs> what other sorts of this is was beer was released in December of last year. Are there any upcoming projects involving agave sacred that people will be able to taste? Well, again, we've got this other one coming from yeast of Eden out in California. Uh, aside from that, you know, we've got a lot of partnerships with different distilleries, um, but and oh God, and a couple other things that are in the works I'm afraid to talk about until they actually happen. He but- doesn't even tell me these things, Alexi. Like I wake up some days and he just sends me a branded bottle of something where it's like, this just happened. And I was like, how did this just happen? Like this, this took months of work. He's like, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to tell you. So he's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to talk about things until they're they're like close to, to launch. Um, so I'd say, you know, follow along on Instagram or Facebook because there's a couple of things that are really cool, especially if 
you live in Chicago. Um, but I will also say one of the things that uh, that we did that came out of one of our, our random road trips was I forgot that I had a whole comic book that I had written that was illustrated by, you know, I'm guessing heavy metal and beer. You probably have some people who like comic books um, that was illustrated. This was back in 2013 that I did this uh, by this guy, Jorge Fornes, who now like he does, he does like Batman and X-Men and Daredevil. Um, but we ended up releasing it because it was about a kid who turns into a, a giant gusano in agave field. Being, like he was struck by lightning in an agave field. Um, so we we have comic books too, I guess is what I'm saying, Alexi. Oh, that's awesome. That's exciting. I think my listeners would definitely be interested in that. Cool. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you, Chava. And thank you, Lou. Do you have any sort of parting thoughts for our audience before we close up? Well, I do, I do, I do. Uh, I think everybody, yeah, wait, I, I feel it in my chest. Uh, I think just, you know, to invite people to, to come to Mexico. I think that yeah. there is so much here in the fermented and distilled drinks, uh, spectrum that is gonna like blow your head in such a way that, that, that you wouldn't imagine. And we're neighbors, you know, you're just like right, right there. It's like take 300 bucks, get here, spend a week. And, and I think that you can support some families that will be very happy to, to get a, a little bit of your support and you're going to taste some of the most beautiful things you've ever tried. You know, and I, I would double down on that, uh, and say exactly the same thing, head down there. Um, uh, and, and for all of those reasons, but also because, again, I think until we have this truly established dialogue with these communities, we are at risk of losing solutions to problems that we can't afford to lose. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll be drinking great stuff while you learn. Yeah. That's an excellent closing note. Chava, Lou, thank you so much for joining me on Heavy Hops. Thank, thank you, you too, much, Alex. Appreciate it. See ya. Adiosito.